Let's just pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, our hearts are moved when we read such portions of Scripture. As we reflect upon the sacrifice of your precious Son. Father, we pray that as we open the rest of Scripture this morning, guide us by your Spirit, we pray. Impact our hearts in a fresh way to understand uh, just this wonderful miracle of salvation. Father, the world shuns this message. But Father, we understand this message gives us life. So we pray this morning as we we contemplate uh, the things that are set before us that you will indeed encourage us, you will indeed comfort us, you will turn our hearts to praise and worship of our glorious Saviour and Lord. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What's in a name? I'm pretty sure every one of you in this building has a name. I'm also pretty sure that that name was given to you. You know, sometimes we have names that we don't like. Sometimes we will go uh, by depot and change that name because we weren't overly happy about the name we received at birth. But what is really in a name? What does a name signify? What does a name symbolise? What does a name show you about the character of a person? When I was a a small boy, I had a friend. He was a great friend of mine and he was uh, of Dutch origin. And his name was Willy von Konderat. And as a small Irish boy with a very simple name of Nathan James Potts, I was very envious of this boy's name. I thought it sounded exotic. I thought it was really interesting. So much so that I decided to rename myself. Because Willy von Konderat was sounded to me like a very, very long name. right? And uh, so I added two new middle names to my name. And being the son of an Irishman, I chose two Scottish names, uh, McGregor George. Okay, so now, therefore, I was now Nathan James McGregor George Potts. Now, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Really. Um, I now have a longer name than poor old Willie, and it, it sounded significant. And it's funny, even to this day, one of my beloved aunties, whenever I see her, she says, G'day, McGregor George. So the name stuck. Uh, and she enjoyed that dialogue with me, and we still enjoy that dialogue. Within the Bible, names are very significant as well. Uh, for instance, right throughout the Old Testament, God is known by many names. And each one of those names is incredibly significant. You have Elohim, which is a name which we will translate in our English Bibles as Lord, lowercase. And it conveys God as being creator, as being the king, as being the judge, as being the Lord, as being the saviour. It's what we call a plural of majesty. Elsewhere in scripture we have 
the name for God as being Adonai in, in the Hebrew. And uh, the root of that word means Lord or Master. And uh, it shows a master relationship to God. God is the authority over us. So the writers use that word Adonai. By far the most common one throughout the Old Testament is what we have in our English translations as Lord in capitals. So when you read your Bible, you'll come across your Old Testament and and you'll see Lord, L-O-R-D in capitals. That reflects the covenant name of God. It reflects God as Yahweh. Some translations put it that as Jehovah. It's from where we get the sense of when God goes before Moses and he says, I am who I am. That's the Lord. He identifies this personal relationship with his people. Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God. He's a, he's a God that keeps his promises. He made promises to a nation and he kept them. His loving kindness, his hesed love and faithfulness is reflected in this name. And there are many other names throughout Scripture for God. You'll see God Almighty, God the Most High, the Everlasting God, the Lord will provide, the Lord of our banner, the Lord of hosts, the Lord is our peace. The Lord is our sanctifier. The Lord is righteous. All those are compound names of God. Doesn't that give us a rich picture of who God is? You see, names are important. And names are significant. Names are important and names are significant. Turn with me back to John. We're just going to read an account which relates heavily to today. It's right at the start of Jesus' ministry. It's in John chapter 1. And we have John the Baptist who has been baptizing outside Jerusalem in the Jordan River for repentance of sin. And some, a delegation come to John. And they start this dialogue with him because everyone is looking for the Messiah. They hear these things that John is doing and they, they don't understand it. So they, they send out a delegation. The Pharisees wouldn't go there by themselves because that would be a little bit you know, beneath them. So they send a delegation to say, go and find out who this John is. Find out what he's there doing. It might be significant, it might not. Let's find out. So we pick up the story in the first chapter of John, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent uh, priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. And he did not deny. But confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, "Uh, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? Well, I've just told you, I'm John the Baptist. Okay, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. And they said, well, who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of those sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. See, John identified himself. He wasn't Christ, he wasn't Elijah, and he was not the prophet. He was the fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy. He was the one that was going to be crying in the wilderness, the forerunner to the Messiah. He was proclaiming and announcing to the nation that the Messiah is coming to Israel. So John doesn't identify, identifies himself as not an Old Testament messianic figure, but as Isaiah's voice, as the one calling, as the transitional figure calling for repentance and heralding God's salvation. In effect, John is heralding the the new exodus, if you like. He's announcing that God is about to redeem his people. You know, for centuries, the desert was a place where God would gather uh, and deliver his people from. From Moses to Paul. They were all equipped for their divinely appointed roles in the wilderness. So it's no coincidence that that, uh, John is crying from the wilderness and referring to himself as uh, the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah. So his statement is really clear. Rather than being a messianic figure himself, the ministry was all about preparing for the one to come. Let's continue reading. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now I have seen and I bore witness that this is the Son of God. The next day John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. See, on two occasions in this account, we have John describing Jesus as what? The Lamb of God. Names are important, and names are significant. So why did John use this term? Why did John use the Lamb of God to point out who the Messiah was? For instance, why didn't John use, hey, here comes the Lion, the tribe of Judah? 
Or perhaps why didn't John use, hey, here comes the son of David? Why didn't he use another animal term like here comes a bull or here comes a goat? Why did he use here is the Lamb of God? Why didn't he use Emmanuel or even Prince of Peace? Why did he use this term, behold, the Lamb of God? Well, firstly, John was filled with the Spirit of God, so this was something that the Spirit of God revealed to John. That's uh, of primary importance here. But, you know, in his thinking, what was he alluding to? He was Jewish by nature, Jewish by citizenship. He was born a Jew. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. So perhaps he was thinking about the story of Abraham and Isaac from Genesis 22. You remember the story well where, where Abraham takes Isaac to the Mount Moriah to sacrifice to God. And as he ties Isaac on the altar, in obedience to God's call, well, you're going to sacrifice your son Isaac, what happens? As he reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him for now. I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the thorns, by, the, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So maybe John was thinking about that particular Old Testament story as he announced, Behold the Lamb of God. Maybe he was thinking about Passover. Maybe he was thinking about the Exodus, how the people got redeemed out of the nation of Egypt. And how they were instructed to take a lamb without blemish, a male, a year old lamb. And how they were to sacrifice that lamb and, and take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house so the death angel could pass over. Maybe that's what he was thinking about as he announced the name, Behold the Lamb. Or maybe he was thinking about the whole sacrificial system where in Leviticus 4 you read about if you wanted to give a sin offering to cover your sin, you could slaughter a bull, a goat, a lamb or two turtle doves. You see, with those three things, with those three examples, the constant theme of those things is blood was shed for the purpose of atonement. Blood is shed for the purpose of atonement. So what is atonement? It's a word we don't use often these days. Sometimes you hear it in the secular media, right? You, you have a grand final loss the year before and someone says, well, will this team finally atone for their loss next season? It's kind of a ridiculous thing to think about, isn't it, in terms of what we're reading here. But people use the word atonement in, in that sense, right? Well, atone means to try and put right or trying to, to wipe out the memory of... Uh, of what it previously had by victory in that case. 
But why is atonement necessary? Why were the Old, the Old Testament scriptures talking about that, especially in Leviticus 4 and, and um, during the Exodus? And why is atonement necessary and what relationship does this have with the name of Jesus? As I stated, names are important. Names carry significance. And names describe a purpose. Notice what we read. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why atonement is significant. Because John was identifying not only Jesus' name as being the Lamb of God, but what that Lamb would do. And we've read that today through John 18 and 19. And I guess naturally the question is asked, okay, the Lamb of God who goes to take away the sin of the world, why does sin need to be taken away? That's a natural question, isn't it? Why does sin need to be taken away? This is the serious side of Easter. It's the serious side of the message of the cross. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates everyone from God. You know how I know that? Because every one of us will die. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Okay? Not just physical death, but spiritual death. And we're all affected by that. Because Adam sinned in the garden, we're all born into sin. It's a remarkable thing, actually, from the moment you're born, you're actually dying. Sin has its hold and grip over us. Death is not only physical, but is spiritual because of I'll use this word, the imputed sin from Adam. What does imputed mean? What does imputation mean? Have we got any accountants here? It's an old-fashioned accounting term. It means if I had a million dollars and I looked and I saw Julie and I said, oh, I love Julie so much. I'm going to impute that million dollars into her account. I don't want anything in return. I loan occasionally. But... <laughs> Yeah, I don't want anything returned, but what has happened is I've taken that and it's imputed. It's sitting in her account. That's what happened when Adam sinned. His sin was imputed to us all because death reigns. It's in our account. I like what David Wells says in his book, The Courage to be Protestant. He defines sin in this way. Sin, biblically speaking, is not only the absence of good. It also entails our active opposition to God. It is the defiance of his authority, the rejection of truth, the challenge to his sovereignty in which we set ourselves up to live the way we want to live. It is the way we wrench ourselves free from obedience to him, cut ourselves off from his grasp and refuse to let him be God. It is therefore all the ways we live life on our own terms, to our own ends, with accountability to no one but ourselves. 
I think that's a wonderful description of sin. So how then does Jesus' name and purpose, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, remove remove the curse of the sin? As I said, we've read this morning the, the crucifixion account. See, his death gives life. His death atones for sin once and for all. Atonement is necessary. The only way you and I can have a relationship with God is to have our sin atoned for. To be removed. It's the only way our relationship can be restored. The New Testament uses four word pictures that describe this word atonement. Four word pictures. And when you combine those things together, you see that atonement satisfies God's wrath It frees you from the slavery of sin. God declares you innocent based on Christ's death. And you're reconciled to him. You have union with him. These are marvelous truths. Especially the one where we see that God imputes. He takes account of. He moves from Christ's account, his perfect righteousness, and places it on your account. That is a a truth to hold on to. It's a truth that provides security because no one can rip that away from you. Christ's righteousness is imputed to your account. Why is this needed? We read in Isaiah 53 and 6, and this is maybe where John was thinking actually, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53 6, we we and All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. A prophecy 700 years before Christ's atonement. And the servant song in Isaiah states the purpose of the Lamb of God. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Isn't that an incredible thing to understand? Because of your separation, because you are separated from a holy God because of sin, God himself made his own son sin so that we might become right with God. And 1 Peter 2.24 tells us, He himself, this is Christ, bore our sins in the body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the story of Easter. The sin bearer has taken your sin. And if you place your faith and trust in the sin bearer, then his righteousness will be counted to you. His righteousness will be imputed to your account. You may not know the Lord here today. I appeal to you. Take this seriously. Think about Easter. Think about what that means. This is a historical fact. Christ died. Why did he die? He was the Lamb of God. Why did he have to die? To restore relationship to God by putting a faith and trust in him. I'd invite you to come and talk to me afterwards if you want to understand further this. If you know the Lord, worship him in this reality that to understand this wonderful truth that God declares us to be just or righteous is not on the basis of our actual condition of righteousness or holiness, but rather is based solely on Christ and his perfect righteousness. His name is a significant name. You know what? The Lamb of God is not only noted here in John's Gospel, but it's noted in Revelation. John also wrote the book of Revelation. I'm going to read these verses to you. Before I do, I just want to quote some verses from Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9.27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Now let's read Revelation 5 together, starting at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And when he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the four, 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made him a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped This is the ultimate view of who the Lamb of God is. We celebrate Easter where we see the crucifixion, where we see the sin bearer atoning for the sin of you and I. But this is the ultimate victory. This is the Lamb standing before the throne of God. He was slain. His blood had ransomed and atoned for us to provide what salvation for every nation, every tribe, every tongue. He's the one who's worthy to pick up the scroll to release judgment upon the earth because he was slain. He is the one and the only one who is to be praised and honored and glorified and worshiped and worshiped. His name is the most important name. His name is the most significant name. It is only when you call upon his name you have assurance of salvation. I invite the music team to come as we sing our final hymn.